Do you love Batman? Do you love Frasier? Do you love Seinfeld? Do you love Dr. Seuss? Do you love James Bond? Do you love Captain America? Oh, hell, do you just love everything that's nerd-related? I know I do. Well, you should come on over to a Nerds World podcast and listen to us, Justin and Andrew, talk everything that's nerd. Yeah, every two weeks, we delve into some random topic that we choose at the end of each episode, and we tell you the whole history of it, or as much as we feel the need to write down, our history of it, and our favorite things about it. So come on over to a Nerds World, wherever you listen to podcasts. everyone to pod and gore your one-stop shop for everything horror now here's your host justin and brandon take it away boys hello everybody and welcome to pod and gore your one-stop shop for all things horror i am your host brandon i'm your other host justin and welcome to our Friday the 13th episode. Finally. Finally. Well, and see, that was the thing. I was, like, obviously being a staple in the genre, um, you have to get it to some point eventually, but I was giving it a little bit of breathing room given how you did a, you guys did a, a franchise dive on, on a Nerds World that I didn't necessarily want to double dip too soon you know what i mean yeah and that was i mean on nerds world back when we were still recording hopefully that'll change come the new year that we'll start up again but all our topics are random and so Mm -hmm. when i chose it out of the hat randomly it was like oh cool you know something horror a tie-in but then it meant like okay well now we have to kind of wait to start up this franchise for you know my horror show yeah, because give it some breath, well, that and then we got did, tied up in you, everything else. So, yeah, well, you guys did the the franchise as a whole. Yeah, opposed to today, we're gonna we're gonna deep deep dive. I got a lot of information to go over. Actually, I have more information to go over than the movie itself. So that should be should be fun. Yeah, I mean, I was and telling so- you before we started recording, like I've watched this movie probably three times, maybe even four over the past year because of Nerds World, and then I watched it for Halloween, and then I watched it again <laughs> last night for this. And it's right. just, out of the big three, I think it might be the most underrated, and it is probably the least best movie of the first three, but it is still a really good, solid movie. It is. It's, And I really do, th- because... It all, it all is a matter of preference when it sure. comes to um, who your favorite slasher is or horror movie or whatever. Mm-hmm. And with Friday the 13th and it being like common knowledge about how Cunningham, about how the project was conceived and yeah. like you can, you get hints of it when you're watching the movie, but like, you know, ripoffs, copycats, whatever you want to call it or not, like everything's really a ripoff of something else for the most part. Like it's really hard to not take another idea and make it an original. And even though this was conceived in that, in that fashion, it's still, it's still its own story. It holds up everything about it. Like sure. You may have copied somebody else's homework, but like 
You change it just enough so the teacher won't notice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not it's not like plagiarized word for word, you know, but it it definitely it stands on its own. It yeah, and it takes elements of, from Halloween, which it, is what it was ripping off, and tweaks it just enough think, and overplays some things. I mean, the entire film, uh, as far as the kills and stuff go, are shot POV from the killer. We don't even know who the killer is until the end. Right, and, which I thought was a great reveal. twist. Yeah. Right. Well, and the twist of that, but I think, and maybe it's the Halloween fan in me, but that's one of the things I love about this movie so much is is that the POV shot and the fact yeah. that you, know, you don't know who it is and like that. It's, it's so effective and, you know, it, it plays with what we perceive to be you know, the common knowledge of serial killers is you assume, and there are shots where it clearly is, but shouldn't be a man. Like, yeah, and I actually have a, a section in here where we're going to talk about that as well. All the goofs? Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I didn't even actually... Um, I don't even have any goofs queued up, but I, I will get some fun facts nice. um, on, on deck for that. So, <clears throat> Friday the 13th is an American... as. Uh, 1980 American slasher film produced and directed by Sean S. Cunningham, written by Victor Miller, and it starred Betsy Palmer, Adrian King, Harry Crosby, uh, Lori Bertram, Mark Nelson, Janine Taylor, Robbie Morgan, and Kevi Kevin Bacon. <clears throat> Was this his first um, movie? It, I think it might have been. I don't remember if it said it was introducing Kevin Bacon or not. But um, I know it's really... It, actually, I think it might be. It was really early on. I was going to say, if it's not his first, um, it's like his second or third. Yeah, so I'll, I'll scroll all the way back. So, Kevin Bacon... Nah, he had a few other things. Um, but let's see. So, he was in Animal House in 1978, hmm. starting over in 1979, The Gift... He, uh, he wrote large and then Friday the 13th okay. um, and then did uh, obviously other things and then broke out with Footloose and yeah. all that four years later. But um, let's see where are we at um, the plot. It's plot follows a group of teenage camp counselors who are murdered one by one by an unknown killer while attempting to reopen an abandoned summer camp. Prompted by the success of John Carpenter's Halloween from 1978, uh, director Cunningham put out an advertisement to sell the film and Variety in early 1979 while Miller was still drafting the screenplay. After casting the film in New York City, uh, filming took place in New Jersey in the summer of 79 on an estimated budget of 550000 a bidding war ensued over the finished film, ending with Paramount Pictures acquiring it for domestic distribution, while Warner Brothers Pictures uh, secured distribution rights. It released on May 9th, 1980, um, and was a major box office success, grossing $59.8 million worldwide. Critical what was the budget was divide, again? Uh, it was estimated around 550000 Okay, so quite a big... Uh... Almost twice as much as Halloween, because yeah. I think Halloween was three hundred, if I remember right. Um, 
Critical response was divided, though, while some praised the film uh, film cinematography score and performances, and others uh, derided it for its depiction of graphic violence. Aside from being the first independent film of its kind to secure distribution by the U.S. in the U.S. by a major studio, its box office success led to a long series of sequels, a crossover with A Nightmare on Elm Street, and a 2009 series reboot. Um, a direct sequel, Friday the 13th Part 2, was released one year later. And so, I did I did uh, write down all the plot, but I'm not going to read that. Just That's for time, time, there's plenty other. Um, so, Friday the 13th did not have a completed script when Cunningham took it, um, took out this advertisement in Variety Magazine. Um, it was, uh, for, huh? I said, hmm. Mm. Friday the 13th was produced and directed by Cunningham, who had previously worked with filmmaker Wes Craven on the film The Last House on the Left. Cunningham, inspired by John Carpenter's Halloween, wanted Friday the 13th to be shocking, visually stunning, and make you jump out of your seat. Wanting to distance himself from The Last House on the Left, um, Cunningham wanted Friday the 13th to be more of a roller coaster ride. Um... The original screenplay was tentatively titled A Long Night at Camp Blood. While working on the redraft of the screenplay, Cunningham proposed the title Friday the 13th, after which Miller began redeveloping. Um, Cunningham rushed out to place an advertisement in Variety using the Friday the 13th title, worried that someone else owned the rights to the title and wanting to avoid potential lawsuits. He thought it would be easier, or he thought it would be best to find out immediately. He commissioned a New York advertising agency to, to develop his concept of Friday, the Friday the 13th logo, which consisted of big block letters bursting through a, a plane of glass or a pane of glass. Which doesn't um, make sense, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I'm going to pay an advertising agency to just put Friday the 13th in big block letters and have a breakthrough glass. Like, yeah. okay. For some reason. Uh, That's yeah, the one thing on about this movie. Every time I watch it, I go, why? I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few other things that happen in this movie that makes me wonder that as well. <laughs> um, Fair enough. So, um, which consists of block letters? In the end, Cunningham believed there were no problems with the title, but distributor George Mansour stated... There was a movie before ours called Friday the 13th, The Orphan. It was moderately successful, but some someone still threatened to sue. Either Phil Scuderi paid them off, but it was finally resolved. Um, so the screenplay was completed uh, mid-1979 by Victor Miller, who later on went to write several television soap operas, including Guiding Light, One Life to Live, and All My Children. At the time, Miller was living in Stratford, Connecticut, near Cunningham, and the two had begun collaborating on potential film projects. Miller delighted in inventing a serial killer who turned out to be somebody's mother. Spoilers. A <laughs> murderer. <laughs> like if This movie's been out for 40 years now. If you haven't seen it, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> and it's referenced in Scream. Yeah, it's... Oh, goodness, yeah. Um, Scream 2, right? No, the first one. It's what uh, when they oh, called Drew shit. Barrymore and quiz her on horror movies. Oh, it's the one she gets wrong. 
Yeah, that's right. And then it, I was thinking about it too. I, I could have swore there was a line about it when they found out that the um, was what uh, Billy's mom. Mm. I Probably. I haven't about. watched Scream Two in a very long time. <laughs> it's been a minute. Um, so, but and actually, I, I watched Scream Two more recently than I than I had watched Friday the Thirteenth until today. Um, where do we go? So. Um. Yeah, he he delighted in inventing a serial killer who turned out to be somebody's mother, a murderer whose only motivation was her love for her child. I took motherhood and turned it on its head, and I think it was uh, that. I think that was great fun. Miss Voorhees uh, was the mother I'd always wanted, a mother who would have killed for her kids. Miller was unhappy about the filmmaker's decision to make Jason Voorhees the killer. In the sequels, Jason was dead from the very beginning. He was a victim, not a villain. The idea of Jason appearing at the end of the film was initially not used in the, or in the original script. In Miller's final draft, the film ended with Alice merely floating on the lake. Jason's appearance was actually suggested by makeup designer Tom Savini, and he stated that the whole reason for the cliffhanger at the end was I had just seen Carrie. So we thought that we needed a, a chair jumper moment like that. And I said, let's bring in Jason. And see, that's the one thing about this movie. It's like, say what you will about Friday the 13th, but fucking Tom Savini was involved in it. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's, I mean, he's it's, the reason it's, they work. Yeah. The effect, he's just, the, the effects, everything is just, is on point. So. Yeah, there's a, there's a documentary uh, the, on him on. I think it's on Shutter that I've been meaning to watch. Yeah, Sam. Well, that was the thing too. Is he? He has a one of those like a big table book. Yeah, out. yeah. I, I, I and I want to. I want to buy it so bad. I just. I'm cheap when it comes to those big books, man. Oh, I know. Like I mean, it's I've... it's it's worth it's worth even though I pay for Fangoria, it's it's <laughs> stupid. Um, so the film was shot in and around the townships of Hardwick, Blairstown, and Hope. In Warren, in Warren County, New Jersey, in September 1979. So, the if you're wondering where Crystal Lake is, it is in New Jersey. Yes. The camp scenes were shot on a working Boy Scout camp, uh, Camp Nobi, uh, Nobi Bosco, which is located in Hardwick. The camp is still standing and still operates as a summer camp. The cinematography in the film employs recurrent POV shots from the perspective of the villain. Uh, Savini was hired to design the film special effects based upon his work in uh, George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead two years earlier. Uh, Savini's design contributions included crafting the effects of Mar Marcy's axe wound to the face, the arrow penetrating Jack's throat, and then uh, Mrs. Voorhees' decapitation. Uh, during the filming of the fight scenes between King and Palmer, um, Palmer suggested rehearsing the, the, the scene based on her theater training. I said to Adrienne that night, why don't we rehearse the scene? I have to slap you. Uh, because on stage, when you slap somebody, you slap them. Mm -hmm. uh, while rehearsing, Palmer slapped a uh, King in the face and she began crying. She collapsed to the floor crying, Sean, she hit me. <laughs> I, uh, I said, well, of course I hit her. We're rehearsing the scene. He said, no, 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 Betsy. We don't hit people in the movies. We miss them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> and that was the thing too, because Betsy Palmer was huge. Like, yeah, like she's not a small woman. No, I I mean like in the acting world too. Oh. Like, um, let me see if I can pull it up. Like before that, she signed on. Um, and the funny thing is, is like she kind of like uh, we were, when we were talking about um. What's his name? Um, the hitchhiker from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like how he was a big mm. actor. Um, Edwin Neal, I think is his name. Like he was a he was a well known bigger actor, and then kind of came down to do that role. It's the same thing with Betsy Palmer, I believe, if I read right. Like she, and the funny thing was that she. Did, I don't think she wanted to do it at first, but then like. It became the thing that she was most known for. Yeah. Um, act. She was the act. She was acting mentor for Adrian King and um, Kevin Bacon. I was looking to see. Oh, she's um, a fun fact about her. She said uh, she uh, stated that she would never have played the role of Miss Voorhees in Friday the Thirteenth if it had not been for the fact that she was in desperate need of a new car. Huh. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, not sure what happened, but yeah. So, blah blah blah. Um, so, as we talked about earlier, there's a bidding war over the distribution rights uh, mm -hmm. to the film um, in 1980 between Paramount, uh, Paramount uh, Warner Bros, and United Artists. Um, Paramount executive Frank Mancuso Sr. Recalled, the minute we saw Friday the 13th, we knew we had a hit. Paramount ultimately purchased uh, domestic distribution rights uh, for $1.5 million. Uh, based on the success of the recent released horror films such as Halloween and the low budget of the film, the studio deemed it a low-risk uh, release in terms of profitability. It was the first independent slasher film to be acquired by a major motion picture studio, and Paramount spend, uh, spent approximately 500000 in advertisements for the film and then an additional 500000 when the uh, film began performing well at the box office. And so they're like, oh, this is doing good. Let's throw some money yeah. at it. Um, so marketing for the film, um, a, one p a, a full one-sheet poster featuring a group of teenagers imposed uh, beneath the silhouette of a knife-wielding figure was uh, designed by artist Alex Ebel, Ebel to promote the film's U.S. release, which is actually the poster that I have directly in front of me um, nice. above my monitor. Yeah, next to my Halloween and Candyman. Um, uh, to promote the film's U.S. release, scholar Richard Noel has observed that the poster and marketing campaign presented Friday the 13th as a lighthearted and youth-oriented horror film in an attempt to draw interest from America's prime theater-going demographic of young adults and teenagers. Uh, Warner Brothers secured distribution rights to the film in international markets. Friday the 13th was released on DVD in the United States by Paramount Home Entertainment on October 19th, 1999. The discs sold just under 32,500 units. Um, on February 3rd, 2009, Paramount released the film again on DVD and Blu-ray in an unrated uncut for the first time in the United States. 
previously on VHS and Laserdisc and DVD releases included R-rated theatrical versions. Um, the uncut version of the film um, contains approximately 11 seconds of previously unreleased footage. Ooh, 11 (laughs) seconds. Worth it. Um, it's like a big bang theory joke. (laughs) Yeah. Um, in 2011, the uncut version of Friday the 13th was released in a four disc DVD collection with the first three sequels. It was again included in two Blu-ray sets, Friday the 13th, the complete collection released in 2013 and uh, Friday the 13th, the ultimate collection in 2000. Oh, and uh, commas people. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Friday the 13th, the completed um, complete collection was released in 2013 and then the ultimate collection again in 2018. Paramount's Blu-ray was released as a 40th anniversary limited edition steelbook in 2020. So in 2020, to celebrate the film's 40th anniversary, Shout Factory released a 4K scan of the original film, as well as parts two and four in a complete series box set, which I thought about snagging, but like I already have them. I know, that set is super cool looking, and I probably could use an updated version. Mine are all DVDs from Hollywood Video when they went out of business, but... <laughs> it's yeah, it's expensive digitally, though. It's an it, expensive set. It's like one hundred and eighty dollars, I think. Yeah, which I mean for Somewhere what twelve there? movies isn't terrible, but no, that's not bad in collector's edition. Like I mean, I've bought, I bought the Halloween's on Blu-ray, DVD, digitally. Like I've I've, I've spent ridiculous amounts of money on some of these and it would make sense to have it. Like I have, I think Friday the 13th are the only ones I don't currently have on disc. Mm. Cause I like, like I can see my Halloweens. I can see my child's plays and my nightmares, but Oh, I do. Never mind. It's in a box. I, I, I bought the, um, a while back. It was, uh, the Friday the 13th. That was the, from crystal Lake to Manhattan collection, or mm. I think it only had the first eight. Hmm. Yeah, There's yeah, a cool yeah. little box that it, it came with a, a little a little mini um, hard mask, which is what my oh, daughter cool. stretched the bands out. When, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was it was really cool looking. But now, like she would put that mask on, and it was funny. But now the the yeah, fucking straps are stre- <laughs> stretched to hell. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, Friday the 13th opened theatrically, as we said, um, in May 9th of 1980. Ultimately expanding its release to 1,127 theaters, it earned 5.8 million in its opening weekend, before finishing domestically with 39.7, with a total of 14,778,700 admissions. It was the 18th highest-grossing film of the year. Wow! Um, facing competition from other high-profile horror releases such as The Shining. Dressed to Kill, The Fog, and Prom Night. Um, the worldwide gross for the film was $59.75 million. Um, of the 17 films distributed by Paramount in 1980, only one, Airplane, returned more profits than Friday the 13th. Um, yeah, Friday the 13th I mean, when you make it on the cheap, that's kind of what you expect, but... Yeah. That's the nice thing about the- horror movies. Yep. And that's why studios um, make them in the first place. 
<laughs> Friday the 13th was released internationally, which was unusual for an independent, uh, independent film with, at the time, no well-recognized or bankable actors assigned from well-known television and movie actress Betsy Palmer. The film would take in approximately $20 million in international box office receipts, not factoring in international sell- sales or the crossover film with, 19- with A Nightmare on Elm Street's Freddy Krueger. The original Friday the 13th is the, is the highest-grossing film of the franchise. Hmm. Um, to provide context with the box office gross of the films in 2014, the cost of making and promoting Friday the 13th, which includes the $550,000 uh, budget and the $1 million in advertisement, is approximately um, $4.5 million. With regards to the U.S. box office gross, the film would have made $177.72 million in adjusted 2017 dollars. On July 13th of 2007, Friday the 13th was screened for the first time on Blair uh, Blairstown's Main Street in the in the very theater which appears shortly after the opening credits. Overflowing crowds forced the Blairstown Theater Festival, the sponsoring organization, to add an extra screening. A 30th and uh, anniversary edition was released on March 10th, 2010. A 35th anniversary screening was held in the Griffith Park Zoo as part of the Great Horror Campout on March 13, 2015. God, that sounds so fucking awesome. <laughs> the Great Horror Campout, just sit outside and watch. Oh, God, that, that sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, film scholar Williams reviews Friday the 13th as symptomatic of its era, particularly particularly Reagan Reagan era America and part of the trajectory of this film, such as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre of 1974 and then Race with the Devil in 1975, which exemplify a particular apocalyptic version or vision moving from disclosing family contradictions to self-indulgent nihilism. The film's recurring use of POV shots from the killer's perspective has been noted by scholars as such or such as Philip DeMar as inherently voyeuristic. Um, sorry, my sister tried to call me. I lost my place. DeMar hmm. regard, regards the film as a cautionary tale that succeeds in warning against the sexual impropriety, even as it fetishizes, uh, fetish, fetish fetish God damn it. Words are hard. Fetishizes. Well, yeah, saying fetishizes. Violent transgressions. Um, yeah. I don't know. Dude, there's like... That's the second time in like a week that that's happened um, where I've had a real fucking hard time saying that fetishizes. It just doesn't sound right coming out, so... What's well, fetishized. Um, fetishized. Fetishized. That's, that's the word. Yeah, fetishizes is what, it, is what, I, is what the quote said. Uh, mm. Film critic Timothy Sherry notes that in his book Teen Teen Movies America Youth um, on screen in 2012 that there uh, that where Halloween introduced a more subtle sexually curiosity more subtle sexual curiosity within its morbid moral lesson films such as Friday the 13th capitalized on the reactionary aspect of teen sexuality slaughtering wholesale those youth who designed or uh, uh, sorry, who deigned to cross the threshold of sexual awareness 
commenting on the film's violence and sexuality, film scholar David J. Hogan notes that throughout the film, teenage boys are hideously dispatched, but not with the same buildup and attention to detail that Cunningham and makeup with Tom Savini reserved for the nubile young girls. And so, sorry. Yeah, I, could um, see that. I didn't know if you're. I, well, and that was kind of what we were talking about a little bit earlier. I wasn't sure if you're going to comment on that. So we're going to. No. Um, I'm just soaking it in. Right, just a nice three second gap of fucking dead air there. <laughs> We've had a couple already. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. So this is um this is the topic that um one of the things we brought up earlier is the uh, gender of the villain. So, mm-hmm. the film has spurred uh, critical discussion in regarding to its villain being female. A plot point examined at length by film scholar Carol J. Clover in her book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws. <laughs> uh, Clover notes that the revelation of Pamela Voorhees as the killer as the most dramatic case of pulling out the gen... Uh, the most dramatic case of pulling out the gender rug in horror film history. Commenting on the first-person uh, POV shots from the killer, Clover writes, We, the audience, stalk and kill a number of teenagers... Uh, yeah, they are hard today. Stalk and kill a number of teenagers over the course of an hour of movie time without even knowing we are... Um, We are invited by conventional expectation and by glimpses of our own bodily parts, a heavily booted foot, a roughly gloved hand, to suppose that we are male, but um, we are revealed at the film's end as a woman. On the killer's identity, DeMar also noted, um, because Cunningham avoids revealing anything about the psychotic killer beyond the fact that the figure is dressed in men's gloves and boots, the audience assumes the Slayer is a man. Cunningham sustains the eerie um, interdeterminacy of the killer's age, social status, and gender deep into this film. The use of cinematic process of uh, abstraction allows the film to linger over the ambiguous nature of evil until Sit's um, climactic last act. So, yeah. it um, That was the one thing about this movie, though, too, is that, like, you you don't know who it is. They do a real good job of uh, keeping that under wraps. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you do assume that it's a man and then like in 1980, I always say that I wish I can go back to 78 and watch Halloween um, in theaters before, you know, seeing it later where everything's been done to death. Yeah, of like, course. I would, I would have loved to have seen this um, this uh, plot twist in theaters and never and not knowing it's coming because. Well, that's the thing. Like, I mean, even really like don't. I said, watching it for the third, fourth time within a year. It, last night it was like it's so different it's such a departure from the rest of the franchise that it almost doesn't fit and i wish i almost wish they would do a remake of this movie because it's such an outlier to the rest of the franchise once they introduce jason Mm -hmm. i don't know it's just it's true it's chilling you know when they she does such a good job going crazy at the end and telling her story 
and mm-hmm. it's I don't know, it's a different kind of scary. Yeah, kill her, kill her, mommy. Which, and I don't know if you have this <laughs> in your notes, but everyone who tries to do the Friday the Thirteenth, it's actually ma ma ma. Like it's yeah, supposed every- to be the hard K and M of killer mommy. Yeah. I don't I don't think I have that in my notes, but that's I also didn't think about it because like when um when the uh did you ever play the Friday the thirteenth game on PlayStation or I, I watched it being played, I think by you at that convention that one time. Oh yeah, that's right. When they that's had right. that booth okay. and yeah. it was like a camp set and shit yeah that was super cool um, yeah. i almost won too that's what pisses me off um so yeah that game and so it had like little fun facts i think from the movie and that was the one thing too that like it when it there was a like a little quote in there saying that it was kick kick him ma 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 and then nobody really knew that before because it was always the cha whatever it sounded like but yeah even my daughter was doing that earlier today. But, like, <laughs> once that game came out and it said that, like, every time you would see, like, a meme on Facebook or anywhere where it would, like, the it had, like, the cat or and it said ch-ch-ch-ch uh, mama or whatever, ha-ha-ha, mm-hmm. um, people went almost grammar Nazi and was like, no, it's <laughs> kick-kick-kick mama mama. It's like, okay, you just found that out. <laughs> and here you are out here policing the internet, trying to correct everybody for saying it wrong, even though that's how we've been saying it for 20 years. Well, that's the, like, I mean, it's, it's like the Luke, I am your father quote. Like every, it's one of those things that everybody gets wrong, but no mm-hmm. one realizes it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, it's, what do you mean it gets wrong? Well, he doesn't say Luke, I am your father. He says, no, I am your father. But everybody oh. quotes it as Luke, I am your father. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Here yeah. we are. Just learning new things. That's what we're here for. Uh, uh, <laughs> but it's so, so ingrained in our psyche. I mean, people who haven't even seen Friday the 13th know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's like uh, it's true. people who haven't seen Psycho know. Yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah. it's such a horror cliche at this point. No one really even knows what that came from. Yeah. Um, so, sequel and franchises. As of 2018, Friday the 13th has spawned 10 sequels, including a crossover film with Nightmare on Elm Street, Bill and Freddy Krueger. Friday the 13th Part 2 came out in 81, introduced Jason Voorhees, the son of Pamela Voorhees, as the primary antagonist which would continue for the remaining sequels, with the exception of the fifth movie and related works. Most of the sequels were filmed on larger budgets than the original. For comparison, Friday the 13th had a budget of 550000 while the first sequel was given a budget of $1.25 million. That's a big old jump. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time of its release, Freddy vs. Jason had the largest budget at $30 million. Holy shit. There's a it took $30 million... It took $30 million to make that movie. Holy crap. Robert England's got to get paid. I get it. I get (laughs) it. Um, uh, All the sequels repeated the premise um, of the original, so the filmmakers made tweaks to provide freshness. Changes involved in 
an addition to the title opposed to adding a number attached to the end, like the final chapter. Oh, wait, sorry. Um, changes involved in addition to the title as opposed to a number attached. So mm-hmm. like the final chapter in Jason Tax- takes Manhattan or filming the movie in 3d as minor did for Friday the 13th part three. One major addition that would uh, affect the entire film series was the addition of Jason's hockey mask in the third film. This mask would become one of the most recognizable images in pop culture. A reboot to the Friday the 13th was released theatrically in February of 2009 with Freddy vs. Jason writers Damien Shannon and Mark Swift hired to write the new film. Uh, The film focused on Jason Voorhees along with his trademark hockey mask. The film was produced by Michael Bay, Andrew Form, and Brad Fuller through Bay's production company Platinum Dunes for New Line Cinema. In November 2007, Marcus Nispel directed the 2003 remake of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, was hired to direct. The film had its United States release in February 13th of 2009. Well, before um, I start on another thing, th- that's one of the things I've been thinking about you know, over the last couple of weeks, knowing we were going to do this. Like, Friday the 13th is probably the only franchise in horrordom where it has to progress to where we know the franchise as meaning the first movie it's his mom as the killer the second movie is Mm -hmm. the first time we even see him and he doesn't even have the hockey mask yet and it's not until the third movie where it's really what we know the franchise to be yeah I, i can't think of i mean halloween has that odd child of season of the witch but otherwise it's pretty much the same thing from the beginning. Same with Nightmare. Well, yeah. Right. But, I don't know. It's but, just it's interesting yeah. that this, to me, is anyway the first really only franchise in horror where it, it takes us almost three movies for it to actually be what everyone thinks of when they think of Friday the 13th. Yeah. Talk about your slow build, right? Yeah not uh it, it works it, like yeah. i like i like baghead jason like i like all yeah. the looks well and that's great. the thing like i think i like more of these movies than probably any other franchise like i love freddy we've talked about that a lot the first halloween mm-hmm. is you know a classic and fantastic but i think i would watch more friday the 13th movies than i would watch you know halloweens or nightmares yeah, I mean it. It's true. Like I, I obviously I've seen the Halloween sequels more than any of the others, but Friday the Thirteenth is really close to. And I think the ones that I watched the least amount of are the Nightmare sequels. Like I've, sure. I've watched a lot of one, two, and then New Nightmare, but I haven't like I, I've seen them, but I haven't watched a whole like they're not. Yeah, I haven't up watched there the Nightmare my, sequels like, oh. in years. Like oh man, I gotta watch you know Freddy's Dead, and it's like. Eh. <laughs> no, I'm good. You know, um, but let's see. So in 1987, seven years after the release of the motion picture, Simon Hawk produced a novelization of Friday the 13th. One of the few additions to the book was Mrs. Voorhees begging the Christie family to take her back after the loss of her son. They agreed. 
Another addition in the novel, uh, novel is more understanding in Ms. Voorhees' actions. Hawk felt that the character had attempted to move on when Jason died, but her psychosis got the best of her. When Steve Christie reopened the camp, Ms. Voorhees saw it as a chance, um, as a chance that what happened to get, uh, to her son could happen again. Her murders were the, against the counselors because she saw them as all as responsible for Jason's death. Um, there were um, a number of scenes from the films were recreated in the Friday the 13th, Pamela's Tale, a two-issue comic book prequel released by Wildstorm in 2007. In 2016, on location in Blairstown, the making of the Friday the 13th was released detailing the planning and filming of the movie. Um, in 2007, Zendex released a game, a game adaptation of the movie Friday the 13th for mobile phones. In the game, the player plays as Annie Phillips, but unlike in the film, she doesn't die. One of the counselors at Camp Crystal Lake, um, while the staff is preparing for uh, the camp, uh, sorry, preparing the camp for its summer weekend, an unknown stalker begins murdering each of them. The player must discover the truth and escape the camp alive. And then, uh, copy this link here. So, there was also a, um, another one, and there was too much to write down for this one, so, and I was going to keep it, uh, brief. Sure. So, uh, Friday the 13th, the game, which um, I played the shit out of. Of course. Um, on PlayStation. So, the Friday the 13th, the game, it's, a, it's an asymmetrical uh, multiplayer video game where you have up to eight people playing uh, in one game session where you have seven counselors and... Uh, one person is randomly selected to play Jason. This came out um, in 2017, May 26th, and then um, as a digital release, and then later released in 2017 in October as a physical release. It, I remember it was Kickstarter. There was a whole lot of issues with this game. I remember um, people complaining about because it was Kickstarted. Um, it was done by Ilphonic, and it was published by Gun Media. Hmm. Um, the game itself was great and it like, there's a lot of people who still play it. Um, I loved playing it, but due to due to the licensing issues with uh series co-creator, Victor Miller, the game servers were shut down as of November of this year, just very recently. How it, it says though, however, the developers will continue to support and maintain the game. Um, I remember before this whole lawsuit thing kind of ramped up, they had released new content for it, and it was, uh, you had to, like, explore and solve all these puzzles in, a, in the house. It was a bitch. <laughs> Only to find out what it was showing you was is that the next, they were going to release a new map, and they were going to bring Jason X and all that kind of stuff, but that never happened and won't happen now because of the lawsuit. Which, yeah, so for those that didn't know, Friday the 13th did have a lawsuit. That's why we haven't seen it. It's kind of been in limbo because there's really not a whole lot that could be done with it because, um, so Victor Miller claims he wrote the original movie as a script, as a, as a spec script, 
while Cunningham states that Miller penned Friday the 13th as an employee of the Manning Company. Um, and so, because Victor Miller, I believe, wanted credit um, more than what he was actually getting. Uh, so, yeah, the future of horror says hinges on this lawsuit. Um, so, it, it basically, it's a... Where did it go? Sorry. Um, sometime before the 1980 release, Paramount Pictures got their hands on a copy of Friday the 13th, releasing horror movies in rapid succession, like its cohorts in the slasher boom of the time, until eventually selling the property to New Line Cinema. The rights are now in the hands of a ri original film producer and director, uh, Sean S. Cunningham. Um, Victor Miller, the writer of the original screenplay, has evoked a... 1976 uh, slice of copyright law to get his script, uh, to get the rights to the script back. And so they're basically going back and forth, you know, um, yeah. about who owns it. And so according to the U.S. copyright law, 35 years after the copyright is sold, one has the option to terminate the sale and have the copyright revert back to them. So basically that time came up and the rights would have went back to Miller Mm -hmm. but they were suing back and forth over that. And there's a lot more to it than just that. But I do believe um, it's saying that I don't think that it's over, but I do believe that it was looking good. So this one says here, Victor Miller did win the lawsuit. According to this, Victor, uh, the Friday the 13th fans have been in limbo um, over... Friday 13 fans have been in limbo over when they may see their favorite slasher grace the theaters again. Um, in what has become a landmark case now for authors elsewhere, original screenwriter for the first um, Friday 13th film, Victor Miller won a court case in September, 2018, awarding him the rights to the film. Hmm. So that, that was written by bleeding cool .com in 2000 uh, earlier this year, uh, February 16th. But, I don't think that it's over, over because I'll, like there something would have happened. They wouldn't have shut down the game. Like I figured, there probably be more things going on. Yeah, and with the COVID if, of it all, there's only so many things that have you know started to get into production again. Well, true. With I mean, COVID, yes, but I mean that that claim that Victor Miller won two years ago, hmm. and so like so I remember that I stuff ramping up in the news like last year. Yeah, and so I don't. I'm not 100 percent sure, and I don't have notes to go any further into that. But so the legacy of the film, contemporary scholars in film criticism, such as Tony Williams, have credited Friday the 13th for initiating the subgenre of the stalker or slasher film. Cultural critic Graham Thompson also considers the film as a template, along with John Carpenter's Halloween, that instigated a rush of films of its type in which young people away from supervision are systematically stalked and murdered by a massive villain. Um, while critical reception for the film has been varied in the years since its release, it uh, has attained a significant cult following. In 2017, Complex ranked uh, the film ninth in an all-time list of the best slasher movies of all time. Um, which is kind of low. Well, like, I mean... I don't know. I'm not saying it's the best, but like it's ranked ninth in a list of the best slasher films of all time. Yeah. I would like, I need, I need to look up that list. Yeah, um, I, mean, I would have to see so, the list, but I mean, crack the top 10. That's pretty good. I mean, and when you compare well, yeah, it to Halloween or, uh, 
Nightmare yeah. or Scream. I could see it losing out to some of those. Psycho. Yeah. Um. So, film scholar um, Matt Hills wrote of the film's legacy, the Friday the 13th has not just been critically positioned as intellectually lacking. It has been othered and devalued in the line with, con- uh, with the conventional aesthetic norm of the Academy and official film culture said to lack originality and artfulness to possess no nominated or recognized auteur and to be grossly sen- uh, sensationalized or, Sorry, to be grossly sensationalist in its focus of Tom Savini's gory special effects, which is really not that gory at all. Um, yeah, especially the, the first film couple. Was not- I'm sorry? Especially the first couple, you know, the first two or three. Yeah. They're really not that bad. And that's a, the thing, not to go off on a big tangent or anything, but that's the thing about this franchise is that it became what everyone thought of to be the worst of slashers like this is as good as some moments of this movie and this franchise are it's what a lot Mm -hmm. of people see as wrong with the slasher genre because it was just gross for the sake of gross yeah i get that so um the film was nominated in 2001 for afi's 100 years 100 thrills in April of 2018, Camp Nobi Bosco, where the film was shot, held Crystal, uh, held Crystal Lake Tours, an event dedicated to making to the making of the uh, film, which brought attendees to nine of the filming locations on the property. The event was attended by actress Adrienne King, um, who recounted the making of the film to the fans, which would be awesome. Yeah. So... Before we dive into the movie itself, um, I did find this list. So, uh, number one is Halloween. Number two is Black Christmas. Number three is Nightmare on Elm Street. Number four is Alice, Sweet Alice. Number five is Peeping Tom from 1960. Number six is um, called Torso. Um, Number seven, Deep Red. Number eight, Twitch of the Death Nerve. Number nine, Friday the 13th. Number 10 is Scream. Number 11 is The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Number uh, 12 is The Burning. Then Maniac. Then Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Uh, Number 15 is April Fool's Day. Number 16, hey, number 16 is Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, one of my personal faves. (laughs) <laughs> number 17 is Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Number 18 is Halloween 2. Huh. Stage Fright. My Bloody Valentine. Un- that one's underrated in my opinion, too. I like that one and the remake's not that bad. Yeah, I like uh, number, no- number 21, House on Sen- uh, Seniority. Uh, How long is this Sorority list? Row. It's not long. Number 22 <laughs> is Terror Train. Number 23 is Silent Night, Deadly Night. 24 is The Prowler. And then 25 is madman you will sit through my lists i didn't know when it was gonna stop i didn't hear 25 i wasn't sure if you're going <laughs> I to like 50 I'll... or 60 or top 100 nah, and it... we were gonna be here for a half hour <laughs> yeah no it uh 25 was pushing it but i i had to finish the list so. yeah. huh, all right so let me see if we got any juicy fun facts before we dive in because i don't have like i said i don't have a whole lot of movie notes sure but um well i'm all for a lighter episode 
Yeah. So, um, do, 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 do. Uh, most of the lo- uh, most of the location and set were already there. Uh, the crew had only um, the crew only had to build the bathroom set, uh, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, while most of the cast and crew stayed at local hotels during filming, some of the most dedicated, including Tom Savini and Tasso and Starvakis, uh, Stavrakis, stayed at the actual campsite. They had Savini's Betamax VCR and only a couple movies such as Barbella and Marathon Man on videotape to keep themselves entertained so each night they would watch one. To this day, Savini says he can recite those movies by heart. I would have done the same thing. I would have stayed at the camp. Hell yeah. Yeah. Might as well. Um, so the MPA told the producers of Friday the 13th to scale back on the gore for the sequel since they regretted... Uh, the amount of gore that had gotten through in the original and subsequent critical backlash. That's why part two is much less gory than part one, which is weird because part one wasn't really that gory. No, but I mean, it has its moments. The blood spurt with the arrow and the axe to the head. Mm -hmm. For 1980, Um, you know, right after Halloween, which is not gory at all. Right. Um... Victor Miller admitted that he was purposely writing the success of John Carpenter's Halloween. Betsy Palmer tells fans she has no idea who this character in the hockey mask is since her son Jason drowned in 1957. (laughs) Um, uh, Harry Crosby, who played Bill in this movie, is the son of Bing Crosby. Hmm. Um, So, uh, composer uh, Henry Manfredini came up with the now classic kick kick him mama ma vocals attached to the score it was his voice as well <laughs> while the halloween movies have lots of music friday the 13th movies have very little music in fact there was a decision made by uh manfredini to only have music in there when the killer was present that's why there are uh, only brief, quick moments of music in the beginning, but the climax is wall-to-wall music. But see, and the thing about that is, and it, it really stood out to me too, because I wrote this down in my notes. Um, I love the score. I love the music in this movie, except for the country twangy shit that they play in the truck when they're driving to, um, when they're driving to camp when it's Kevin Bacon and all them in the truck. Yeah. And it's just like this, like, it's like, oh, they're out on an adventure having fun. Like, it just didn't really feel like it fit to me. I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but it's like, I you get, get you just get done. Have, you just get, have this really cool stocky music. And then all of a sudden, so, I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> um, uh, Sean Cunningham has been quoted as saying that the type of actors that he sought for the film were good looking kids who you might see in a Pepsi commercial. <laughs> Yeah, um, the scene with the snake was not in the script and was an idea from Tom Savini after an experiment or an experience in his own cabin during filming. The um the snake was the snake in the scene was real, including its on screen death. Um That was the fun fact I was gonna add if you didn't. Oh uh, yeah. Um Gene Siskel hated this movie so much. He gave away the ending in his review. <laughs> he and Roger <laughs> he and Roger Ebert also slammed it in a special edition of Siskel and Ebert called The War on Women, which focused on misogynistic slasher movies. All of this just boosted ticket sales. <laughs> yeah. 
That's, um, I mean, that's always the way, and that's the way horror fans are. I mean, if you say something, and they mm-hmm. talk about it in um, His Name is Jason, which is a documentary on the franchise. Yeah. That, you know, calling it a deplorable piece of filth just made people want to see it even more. It's like, oh, well, if it's that outrageous and crazy and gross, well, I got to see what, what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um... So this one here, because I know it's been brought up a, a, a few times, but I actually didn't know the second part here. So this movie was inspired both in both by Halloween, a blockbuster slasher movie, and a movie called Meatballs, a teen sex comedy set in a summer camp, which had come out within a year and a half before and were both big hits, focusing on the youth market. Like, I had never heard about the Meatballs um part either connection um yeah Hmm. so jason is not mentioned by name until an hour and 16 minutes into the film and steve and producer steve milner initially thought it was an idiotic idea to bring jason back in sequels saying he wasn't your villain he's just a a figment of someone's imagination despite this he went on to direct the next two friday the 13th movies starring jason as the villain um right. right Uh, that's about, I mean, there's some few other ones. Did you have any other fun facts that I didn't hit? No, so we get into the thing. Okay. Yeah. Victor Miller wrote the script in about two weeks and he never went to summer camp as a kid and filming lasted 28 days. Sally Field was offered the role of Alice Hardy, but turned it down. That would have been interesting. Right. Um, so yeah, let's go ahead and get into the thing. So, I, I I really didn't want to go beat for beat on it. Like, no, it's not really a movie where you need to. There is some cool stuff worth mentioning, but a lot right. of it is just setup and stalking and the kids having a good time with a guitar, singing, you know, singing in a circle. Yeah, totally. And that, like, so that's the one thing that. I wrote also is like just the stocky POV shots and then sneaking around. So the intro of this movie though, it kind of had a Texas chainsaw vibe to me when he, when the first counselors die in the, in the, in the upstairs mm-hmm. and she, uh, like she kind of flails back with her arms up and then it freezes and zooms in on her. Yeah. Like it really kind of felt it felt Texas Chainsaw esque, but it also they did that later on when I believe when Marcy died, just before the axe, like like they kind of zoom in on her face as she's like, you know, ah. <laughs> like it just yeah. Well, and it's also very yeah. Halloween for obvious reasons of them, you know, having sex and then dying like uh, Michael's sister right. does in the beginning. Right. And the the like the thing about this one is too is it's like so I get that um Ms. Voorhees was killing everybody because they were counselors. Like they didn't mm-hmm. even have to be doing anything. It's just the fact that they were count uh, they were counselors and they well, could yeah, potentially let it happen again. Yeah, that and that's the thing that it, this I was paying attention to it last night like everyone associates this movie with if you have sex do drugs drink you die but that's Mm -hmm. not what this movie is about 
She's killing them because she doesn't want the camp to open again. Not because of them doing anything, because Alice smokes, she drinks, she's playing strip mm-hmm. Monopoly. Yep. She doesn't actually have sex, but, I mean... Right, well, and that's the thing about this movie, too, like... So... Um... It's a few. It's a few of my things down. A few of my notes down. So I'll I'll just kind of gloss over this. So crazy Ralph cracks me up. He's all, "You going to Camp Blood, ain't you? It's got a death <laughs> curse, <laughs> right?" And then I was gonna comment on the uh, the trucker that gives Annie a ride to camp. Like, yeah, I want like he he kind of seemed pervy because like you know he's like he's like well or, you know. I'll, I'll, the other female counselors as pretty as you and then mm. like he's kind of pushing her up into the into the truck I was gonna say he totally cops a feel when he's helping her into the quote unquote helping her into the truck right but then when she gets in there and he's talking to her and he's like seems like he genuinely cares and he's like you know take care of yourself out here and it's like hmm. you just basically went from being a super perv to being like hey you know take care of yourself out here and it's like wait what and also belittling okay. and demeaning the teenage demographic, saying <laughs> yeah. how stupid they all yeah. are and won't listen to anybody. Right. Um, and so that's the thing is like Annie starts hitchhiking again or gets picked up by a Jeep. Mm. They missed the turn. And I, and I had wrote down that it was weird that she had died like that. Like she had said she was a counselor. So basically that kind of meant it was open season for her. Yeah. But, like, she hadn't even got to the camp yet. Like, she didn't even yeah. die on site. But I think, like you said, I think mentioning that she was a counselor and was going to be working there is what triggered it. Like, I think if she was just, you know, headed to the store, she might have survived. Right, and I agree with that, but at the same time, too, because... She seemed real genuine about it too. Like she modest, modestly dressed, like yeah. nothing was showing in, in the slightest. And she was talking about being the cook and how she wanted to be there for the kids and help them mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And it's like you're, it's don't doesn't matter. It's not going to help. Yeah, you're still going to die. <laughs> um, well, Mrs. Voorhees isn't so, really all together. I mean, no, she's got she's a few not. screws loose. Yeah. Um, I I had wrote down the score um, that how I do love the the music of this movie. Um, it it's a lot more busy, you know. What I mean, like with with Halloween's, it's more like do do, you know, like or like mm-hmm. Jaws, where it's like really subtle, um, bassy tones with mm-hmm. the occasional jarring woo, and then with this how one, it's it just go? like a full. Yeah, woo. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Um fuck you. Um but like this one's like a full on orchestra, like just going at it. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. it it sounds awesome and it works well, but it just I'm glad that they compose something and it it doesn't make you think of any of uh, you know other movies for being considered um a copycat in the line of those type of movies. Like there is a lot of originality in the story and everything about it. It just may have been shot in that. Yeah. I mean, it, it takes the tropes of Halloween and amps it up to 11, but there's so many other ways that they could have 
swindled Halloween, especially the score, given how iconic yeah, that, and big deal it is. Yeah, that they that's what, that's straight exa- away from, thankfully. Yeah, and that's ex- that's exactly like what I like. I do. I love this movie. Um, yeah. I really do, and it and it also is because like it 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 does start up its own thing and continues and like it's basically just like takes a t- like a torch it may have stole the torch but it ran with it and it mm-hmm. took its own path yeah you know what i mean like it may there's have, enough in this franchise that is its own so that yeah. jason can stand up with michael and freddie and not be their you know right i agree offshoot that no one really cares about anymore um so the next thing that I had written down was was the snake scene, how there was a snake under the bed, and the thing that drove me nuts about it is like, like where's it at? And they all dive to the floor and then lift the blankets, <laughs> and it's like, what if it was right there? You trying to get bit right? in the fucking face? <laughs> and the, and they talk well, about thing, like, I oh, mean, they, we're go- it, she just said it's a snake. She doesn't know what kind. Like it could have been probably not a rattler because they would have heard it, but something very deadly poisonous that could have bit them immediately. Right. And but they're, they're just like a bunch um, of goofballs having a having a time. <laughs> yeah, and they're like, "Hey, uh, Kevin Bacon's like, hey, or Jack is his name. He's like, let's drive it out from underneath there, and then butt bombs the cot. Like yeah. he just does. <laughs> he does like a, a like a a Hulk Hogan atomic leg drop and just fucking goes right through it. And, and it's given like, the fact oh that it actually God. was a real snake, like mm-hmm. <laughs> it could have bit them. Yeah. Um. So they uh, they do they Bill does kill it cuts it in half and it's weird because you don't really see a whole lot of like actual animals of any type dying on screen like it was it happened in um, Cannibal Holocaust in uh, very grotesque fashion mm-hmm. but generally like generally it's usually faked like it's not real sure. but like when this snake gets cut in half like you look at it and you're like oh yep that's definitely a real life snake that just got cut <laughs> like. Mm-hmm several times uh yeah and so then the next thing i wrote down was about the cop when he shows up and you gotta smoke a pot that was classic it was like watching the opening of super troopers but trying to be serious yeah it was a real a real cop stereotype (laughs) like he literally just was like let me find out now you're smoking reaper grass pots marijuana whatever and it's like dude shut the calm down (laughs) Put a lid on the top here. Yeah. Like, oh, God, fucking Ned. Like, okay. Yeah. I will um, say that Kevin Bacon was being an idiot. Like, you don't go up to a police officer's bike and start fucking with the radio <laughs> and stuff. Like, yeah, if like, that happened now, you'd be arrested. Yeah, if not shot. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, <laughs> God, don't. So. And the other nice thing about this movie, not to cut you off for the seventh time today, but... (laughs) That's fine. (laughs) This, again, a a franchise that is known for having the stereotypical teenagers, this movie doesn't really have that. Like, Ned Mm -hmm. is the most irritating, but finding a most wanted to die for the scorecard is like, well, it's, I guess, that person, but there's no one that I actively hate, like in so many of the sequels. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm right there with you. Good. I'm glad. Okay. 
Yeah, sorry. <laughs> we can move on now. <laughs> like, yeah, my, my my phone dinged. I looked down at it, and then I caught half of what you're saying, and then you stop. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> no one in the movie we actively oh. hate, like another uh, later on in the franchise. Oh, yeah, well, Ned was kind of like a less irritating version of fucking, what's his name from Nightmare? Yeah. <laughs> fucking, oh, sit on it. With a rubber hose um, and a lawnmower and whatever the hell else he says. Yeah. Um, so it was funny because the cop showed up because he's looking for Crazy Ralph. And Crazy Ralph was actually at the camp yeah. hiding in the fucking pantry. And it's like, what I know, are you like doing? Maybe if he had gotten off his bike and looked. <laughs> <laughs> right. Have you kids seen um, him? No. Well, I guess he's probably not here then. Yeah. So the next one... Uh, we got we got the Kevin Bacon sex scene, mm-hmm. getting busy underneath or on the bottom bunk while Ned's dead body is on the top bunk and everybody else is playing uh, strip monopoly. Mm-hmm. As you do. Um, right, of course. And so shortly thereafter, that um, I keep forgetting which counselor what her name was, but she left to go pee. He's laying there, lights up, a smoke, and then gets the arrow through the neck. Which was awesome. Right. And one of the the other things that stood out to me about this was Steve, when Steve left, he said he'll be back after lunch. And that everyone was going to be working on stuff. He was still Mm -hmm. at the diner and it was fucking night. Like, he he was still out after dinner. You're a supervisor. You take your long lunches that uh, last into the... uh... (laughs) Bullshit! You know Late that I don't because of, I of next day. <laughs> <laughs> no, because like when you take your lunch at noon and I get up there twelve oh five whatever, and then I leave when you guys do. I take short lunches. Um, so like everybody does get picked off one at a time. Things start to get a little bit more tense as Bill and Alice are searching the camp and they find the the bloody axe on the pillow. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve starts to make his way back to the, um, starts to make his way back to the camp. Like, did his, I had to run inside the house for a second. I didn't pause it. Did his, like, Jeep run out of gas or did it break down it that gets, he needed to get Because it's raining so bad and he's pulling that boat behind him, it gets stuck in the mud. Oh, okay. Um, so, Alice finds Bill dead, runs screaming. Dead and then just dead bodies just start popping up out of nowhere and like my notes were so few and far in between because I'm like well there's nothing really discernible going on but yeah. it's all leading up to this moment to where um, Alice is crying in the cabin. Um, well, that's and my something daughter, to, I mean worth talking about I suppose is that this more than any other film in the franchise feels the most real. I mean it's really mm-hmm. just. Even like you were talking about when them driving to the camp with the country music, like it just feels like an average ordinary day following these kids and then they start getting picked off one by one. It's not super crazy, supernatural, coming back with lightning, crazy maggot face (laughs) nonsense that it turns into. Like in theory, this is one of those movies where this could happen. Yeah. Where someone just unhinges and unloads on these you know, unbeknownst kids. And this is even more realistic than Halloween because even at least in Halloween, like 
Michael's wearing a mask. He's wearing the like he's got a, a uniform. In this mm-hmm. one, it's just it is a, it's a lot more plausible because everything that happened like that, like if a mother saw her or you know if her son drowned and nobody helped, like that could yeah. cause you to lose your shit. Like everything about this is rooted in reality, and, and it's I a think lot that's more what believable. makes it so effective because she's not running around in a clown mask or wacky makeup. Like no. we assume these yeah. characters, you know, do now in any mm-hmm. horror franchise. Human. She's just some lady in a poofy sweater. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, and the funny thing was, is when she goes back to the cabin, she locked everything up and then she's kind of crawling along the floor crying. And my daughter's, my daughter walks into the garage and she, she's watching for a second before I notice. And she's, she yells, hide. <laughs> You're training she's like, her go too and hide. Well. It's like she's like, go and hide. And I'm like, Don't go up the stairs, go out the front door. Yeah. Um, so then she runs outside thinking that Steve comes back because it's a Jeep, and then gets up um you know, Pamela Voorhees gets out and you know, she starts to monologue it and like, Oh, I used to work for the Christies and I love that. You speech. know, and then I do too, and then she kinda like more and more you can like you just it deteriorates into like I don't know almost psycho-esque where it's like holding up this front then it just starts to break away and you're like you're like oh no they shouldn't should have just been paying attention you're like wait what (laughs) uh Uh excuse me well yeah I mean it is Uh kind of psycho-esque in that you know because uh Bates kind of is his mother and in a lot of you know towards the end of her breaking she's Jason and she's using her kid voice to go kill her mommy kill her like don't let her get away so she is emulating that she is Jason doing the, the killing yeah exactly or coaxing herself into it or whatever you want to however you want to look at it right um so Boom, plot twist. This is where it all actually comes out. And then they just get, they they start fighting. Mm-hmm. And it's a very long, drawn-out it, fight. It's a, it very, it's very Peter Griffin and the chicken. Yeah. Where they, they start out here and they're just fighting all over everywhere. Like, you're like, oh, okay. And then she gets knocked out. And then she gets back up. And knocks her down. Gets yeah. back up. Hit with the oar. Yeah. Trying to get... But it's good because, I mean, this is the only time we see her. You know, the rest of the movie, she's the camera. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. at least it gives it her due. It's not, oh, it's her and now she's gone. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so it is a realistic fight. It's not over the top. It's uh, just two ladies going at it. Um, They're like... They're taking damage. They're not getting up right away. You know what I mean? Like, it, it mm-hmm. does seem authentic. Like, if I hit you with an oar, like... It's going to you... rattle your bell, bell a little bit. Like, when she... It's a little overacted at times. I mean, it's the 80s. What do you do? Yeah. But when Alice clocks uh, Mrs. Voorhees and she falls back on that hay or whatever it was, like, mm-hmm. you see that her bell got rung and she's just trying to get her shit back together. Yeah. Before she takes off again. Oh, for sure. Um, so the fight concludes with um with uh her with 
her Alice cutting um, Mrs. Voorhees' heads off. Um, and then she gets with in the, the boat and mind you. with the machete. Ex- yeah, with the machete. Um, and then floats out to the middle of the lake just to be jump scared by Jason, which was another like just the the calming music and the mm-hmm. beautiful scenery in the background like it just lulls you into this false sense of like yeah nothing it's over nothing's gonna happen she's good to go yeah you see the cops pull up and waving her in yep and then here comes fucking ari layman right out the fucking water (laughs) (laughs) a young ari layman but like yeah uh that that scene because it does it's almost i would i wouldn't say too long but it's long enough to where you're just like okay yeah, we're wrapping up here. It's done. It feels like end credit music. Any minute mm-hmm. now, the screen's going to go black and it we're doesn't. Leave. <laughs> yep. Um, and then you know she goes to the hospital. Everything's okay. She's like, you know, what about the boy? He's like, there is no boy. There never was, but you know, there's no boy. Ma'am, we didn't uh, find no boy. Yeah, we didn't find him. So yeah, that's that's a lot of talking about Friday the 13th a little bit talking about the movie but like it's a lot of a lot of building up to the end scene there's not really a whole lot to deep dive into aside no, I mean, from it's, like it's a very bare beginning. bones straightforward movie and it's the ending that makes the movie I mean I right. think if there hadn't been that twist I think if there hadn't been if it had just been some dude killing right. people because that's just what he does i don't think it would have lasted as long i think it's underrated and kind of forgotten as it's become mm-hmm. that twist is what made this franchise exist right i agree and i wish there would have been a way to keep it going with that like with the feel mm-hmm. of this first movie instead of going wacky but i don't see how yeah. it could have no, I mean this was this was 1980. So like, same with how Halloween was in the late 70s. Like, there's a drastic a drastic shift from your, you know, horror from then to then. Like mm-hmm. 80s became like everything got bigger and badder in the 80s yeah. into the 90s. Well, 90s not so much, but like you had your slashers. There's a lot more. It seemed like and cor- wacky kills and yeah, like the seventies felt like there it was it felt more deliberate. Like there was a lot more story to it. It wasn't just this for the sake of that. Like, mm-hmm. like I don't know. That might be eighties. Yeah, it was definitely about the spectacle. Yeah, I agree completely. All right, so that's Friday the Thirteenth. We'll go ahead and dive into our scorecard here because. Mm-hmm. This is what the scorecard was designed for. Slasher movies, yeah. movies mm-hmm. with a lot of death in it. Um, so my best killer scare, my favorite kill would be uh, Kevin Bacon getting the arrow through the neck. Yeah. What about you? Uh, I went with scare uh, and it was the Vor- uh, Mrs. Voorhees reveal. It's the only time in the oh. movie where it's actually unsettling and scary seeing her deteriorate and making that speech like it's the way she delivers it is just creepy right i could see that your Um, most wanted to die is probably my most wanted to die 
Ned. It's just yeah. there was no. It was just hard. There's nobody else to. And that's the thing. He wasn't like I was saying earlier. There's no one that you really hate in this movie. It's not like in the reboot, which I love, with Chase or whatever, the blonde guy who's just a dick from you know word go, mm-hmm. and you can't wait to yeah. see him die. Like there's no one that hated here. So yeah. Ned. Alrighty. Um, my most wanted to live was Annie. I, I, I just, it was probably with her dying outside of camp. Like she never even got there. She just trying to go and do her thing. Like Mm -hmm. you never got to see her do anything, which that could be kind of considered unsavory, I guess. Like everybody that was already at camp kind of did like their questionable things. And so like Annie just, she's just trying to get to camp cook some food for the kids and staff and seemed to be the one that like actually wanted to be there for the right reasons. Is how what I felt at least. What about you? I originally went with Steve cause all he was trying to do was, you know, just open the camp. But I think that in itself warrants his death. So I'm going to go with Bill just because <laughs> he was just trying to do the right thing. Help Annie. He was, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't hightail it and run like he was trying to help her and he was, checking on everything oh i heard this noise okay i'll go check it out you stay here and be safe and paid the price mm-hmm. for it all right so my, my gr- uh it probably would just be pamela getting her head cut off because there was some blood i didn't want to double dip with all the blood spurting from the arrow uh well, arrow good, neck because that's what i'll do yeah, I knew I figured that. But I mean, it it really is that really is the grossest scene, but like I'm not I I try not to do that for both. So I mean, at least you like when when Annie cuts her head off, like you can see spine, you can mm-hmm. or, you know, the neck, you can see there's like you can see a bunch of all that. Get that. Yeah, I went with the arrow. And so dumbest yeah. moment. Um it was really hard because like I mean, like you said overacting aside, um, I really wasn't a big fan of the freeze frame zoom ins when uh, the girls were getting killed. I just I didn't like it. Yeah. What about you? I went with the uh, off motorcycle cop Dorf. He was just <laughs> <laughs> he was just oh, God. so unnecessary. <laughs> I mean, I. <laughs> I like that he was there to warn the kids about Crazy Ralph so that they could then see Crazy Ralph, I guess. But it almost would have been creepier because the audience knew him, you know, because he interacted with What's-Your-Face at the beginning. Like, it would have been, I think, more impactful had the cop not warned us about him in the first place. Yeah. And he just popped up in the cupboard and like, oh, shit, it's this guy again. He must have bicycled here from the store. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so our special category, we wrestled around with a few different ideas. Um, so my initial thought was to be, uh, and it wasn't even anything really to do with the movie more so like what would, what would be your favorite camp activity? Um, then Justin suggested about best murder weapon. And then we concluded on if we had a child that went to camp, and they died the same way as Jason, and we reacted the same way as Ms. Voorhees, what would our 
weapon what would we what would our signature weapon be like jason had the machete she used the hunting life a fuckload in this movie mm-hmm. um what what would More be our weapon of choice right what would be our weapon of choice um part of me wanted to go with the axe because i just i love axes mm-hmm. but i also feel like that's not yeah i'll stick with the axe because it i i, I like axes i I don't. I don't. I wouldn't necessarily use a knife. Um, machete would be more probable, uh, easier to use. But yeah, that's. I'm. I think I'm leaning towards machete. I was thinking knife because it's lightweight, quicker. But I don't want to get up that up close. Whereas a machete, even if you're far away, you could nick someone with the edge to you know get them right. down and then finish. Well, that also makes me think like I'm I'm a big fan of archery. Like I've never really done it, but I that would also be another one. Like I would just legless my way through the camp and just pick people off one by one with that an arrow. Good. That, that that's why I'm so behind where on someone this. did that. Was that uh, Leslie Vernon? He did. I, I think he had a bow. I'm not sure. I don't remember? I just that uh, or. It, I just, I know that, like, it, I've been thinking about it because the thing that's kept me from watching the movie until today, I've been playing a lot of Assassin's Creed Valhalla, and I've been using mm. an a, a bow and arrow to kill a lot of people from a distance, and I'm like, I just, mm. I'm just, a, I'm just about it. And so, you know what? I, I think it was Hush. Oh, yeah. yeah, Hush with the crossbow. Yeah, that's what it was. I, yeah. It was effective. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's not, call. you know, aside from using like a gun, which is easily traceable, using a random tool, it, mm-hmm. as long as you don't leave it behind, you know, yeah. you're good. Yeah, for sure. That's All right, for man. That's uh, sure. Friday. That's Friday the 13th in a, in a nutshell. Indeed. Anything else you want to add before we get out of here? Nope. I think we're good. No. We covered it all and so much more. Uh, I'm glad that we finally opened the door on this franchise yeah. because this uh, is this one has my favorite reboot. Yeah, my favorite. That's it. yeah. I'm I'm right there with you. My favorite. Like I like the Halloween, but I think I like the Friday the 13th reboot better. I just like this yeah. version of Jason so much more. Mm-hmm. Bigger, faster, stronger. Better um, than ever. St- it's still still rooted in um in reality. reality. Yeah, until the because, end. Because well, yeah, but I mean like the way that he find like pops up, he, like he's got the underground tunnels, he's got that mm-hmm. bell system letting you know where people are at. Like it's they took a little bit of the supernatural out of it, like they had in so many other ones. Like that's how he got around was underground and then popped up and Yeah. But I can't wait so, to that might be the one that I cover. Because I love that movie I'm sure, so much. I'm sure it will be. You're the reboot guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so before we get into the social medias, how about you let everybody know what your next episode is going to be? All right, Brandon, I will. Uh, next episode, <laughs> right, we will officially be into December. So we are kicking off our two episodes about uh, Christmas with my first pick. And it's probably... One of my favorite movies of all time, one of my favorite Christmas movies, Halloween movies. It's got its own shelf on my display of a shit ton of toys <laughs> that I own. 
it's Nightmare Before Christmas. And probably will be the most innocent of movies we cover on this podcast. Yeah, probably. <laughs> no, Nightmare on Elm Street. No, God damn it. Sorry. Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, um, It's up there with me too, man. Like my daughter is into it super hard. So yeah. that'll be an easy one to watch with the family. Um, it's one yeah, of the, I like, I, I own the CD. I, I can quote the entire movie to the annoyance of my wife. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's my jam. Like I said, it, it covers an entire shelf of my many shelves of toys. So yeah. I can't oh, wait. for sure. Hell yeah. So that is it for us today. Mm-hmm. Um, until we come back on, what's today? Sunday. So that's, we'll drop December 7th, your next episode. Um, until then, you can find us on Facebook at Pod and Gore Podcast. We have our page, we have our group. Come hang out on either. Um, you can email us at podandgore at gmail.com. Got a little out of order there. Uh, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at gore underscore pod. We are on the slasher app at pod underscore and underscore gore underscore podcast. Um, you can find us on there. Uh, hit us up. Let us know if you, you have, um, a request, a movie that you want us to cover, a topic, mm-hmm. a show. Um, make sure to like and review us if you can, if you haven't already. Um, we're fortunate enough to have as many as we do now, but we could always more use more. Always we better. appreciate that. Oh, yeah, for sure. And so until then, and we head to Halloween town slash Christmas town <laughs> slash whatever. Um, yeah. yeah. Sounds good. Um, But yeah, we'll catch you next time. Uh, I've been Brandon. And I've been Justin. And we'll see you later. Bye. Bye.